worship team. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Some of you might be a little surprised to see me here this week. Last week I said Sean would be taking this message, but we called an audible on that and swapped things around just to keep everybody on their toes. So hopefully you're surprised and not disappointed. But I'm excited and honored, as, as always, to share God's word with you and preach this second message in this series I kicked off last week on the book of Leviticus. And last week I, I introduced us to this book that's, that's often neglected by the church today. And I talked about how God in Leviticus calls a community to his presence. And I noted three aspects of God's call to the Israelites in Leviticus. There's a call to community, to be together, to live together. There's a call to holiness. And there's a call to be free from sin, this introduction of the sacrificial system, uh, to cleanse them of their sin. And I argued that God is still doing this today. And I, I use some illustrations to talk about how God does this today. And the patterns and the framework that we see set up in Leviticus points to and anticipates its fulfillment in Christ. And I want to be really clear that you know, some of the language I used in that illustration, we're not, we're not comparing ourselves to this, this covenant that was made at Sinai, as if we're against it or in comp competition with it, but rather... We, we rejoice in it. It lays down the framework, that the shadow that points ahead to this awesome reality that we have now in Christ. And we're going to see that again today as we look at chapter 16 of Leviticus. Because God is still calling a community to his presence. At this very moment, as we're here, God has called a community into his presence. And this is excellent news. Excellent news because we long for the presence of God. And as we move into the second week, I'm going to stay on that thought and park there for a while because our text today solves a problem. Our text solves a problem. But to see how this works, I need to spend some time describing the problem. And then we'll read God's response to this in Leviticus. So we long, I long, you long for the presence of God in your life. And our human experience is the most powerful pointer I can think of of the fact that we long for God. Because when we think about our, our basic needs, we find that they always boil down to just a few things. And the, the largest of these that I argued last week and again today that's shared by all of humanity is love. We long, we crave love to be accepted, to be admired, to be desired, to be cared for, to be cherished, that we have value and meaning. However you express it, you long to be loved, along with everything that being loved includes, to be accepted, the peace that comes with that, to be desired, cared for, cherished, valued. Just sit and think for a few moments, all that you strive for and hope for in life. Your friendships, your relationships, marriage, sexual intimacy, performance at school, or in your job, or in the band, or on the athletic field. You long to be accepted, to feel valued, to feel loved. And think for a few moments about all the things you fear most in life. 
being alone or having your faults, your secret shames, your, your shortcomings, your fears being exposed, your appearance, your, your deep personal struggles, your most intimate pain, and being rejected. Just think about how much you manage the impression you make on other people so you'll be accepted by them. From combing your hair in the morning so you look presentable, to maybe softening a certain embarrassing story so you don't look quite so bad. All this impression management, what are you after? You want to be accepted. You want to be loved. Tim Keller used to be a pastor in New York City, and he said it like this. He said, to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. And no amount of love and acceptance is enough for us. It is a bottomless pit. It never ends. Our craving is absolutely impossible to fill. My wife and I can never give enough of love to each other. We've been married a wonderful marriage for 13 years. And I pointed out last week how preposterous it would be if I questioned why in the world I had to celebrate our anniversary every year. Right? Didn't we have our, our marriage vows? Didn't I say I love you enough? I looked in your eyes. I put a ring on your finger. I spent all this money. We went through this big to-do. That's not enough? Like that doesn't have enough legs to carry us a year? I got to say it every day? You have to know that you're cherished and loved? That's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous because we know it. Every morning we wake up and we need to be filled again because it's, it's, it's an abyss and our friends, our family, our colleagues can heap it on us and it's never enough. We always want more and we'll do anything for it. We will do anything for love. We will endure all kinds of inconveniences and take risks and suffer pain and trial for a taste of love. We'll make choices that we know are wrong for love. We'll settle. We'll settle for a relationship where we are mistreated just so we're not alone, just for fear that nothing better will come along or we'll hope that they'll change. We'll sacrifice our integrity We'll lie, cheat, steal, do things we know are wrong just to get it. And love isn't the only thing we strive for, of course. I would argue it's the greatest, but we also long for peace. We long for security, comfort. This is rest. We long for provision, knowing that our, our basic needs, food, water, shelter, safety, that these are met. All of these things, love, peace, provision, we strive for these beyond all else. Everything boils down to that, and yet we never quite have enough. And we know somewhere in our hearts, by admission or not, that nothing, nothing in this world can satisfy that for which we long. Has, has anything in this world truly satisfied you, lastingly satisfied you? Any experience, any relationship, any material thing, I would bet that the things that have come the closest are relationships. But even if we are blessed with something like an enduring marriage or a close friendship, we know that it's still temporary. People move, and even if they stay around, one day it's going to end in sickness and death. Even the best of relationships, the very best, we still experience deep hurt 
rejection and pain. Nothing's enough. A great job, great family, great home, great car, great bank account, awards, accolades. Do they ultimately satisfy? There's always something else that we're looking for, isn't there? Do we ever reach a point where we say, that, that's enough, I'm done? Or do we keep striving? Now, an apropos illustration, given the day it is today, but several years ago, I think maybe a decade ago now, Tom Brady gave an interview on 60 Minutes. And you'll tell this was a while ago, but just listen to what he says. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? So this must be a while ago. But why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Maybe six someday. But why do I have three Super Bowl rings, Tom Brady says, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Now, whether you're a Patriots fan or not, one could argue that Tom Brady has just about the best that this life could offer. Beautiful wife and kids, all the money and prestige and accolades the world can offer, adoration from fans. He's in great physical shape. He's a good-looking guy. What does he lack? Yet, he still feels the hollowness of it all in his own heart. It's not enough. And it's not enough because he, like all of us, longs for God. Eternal, unchanging, perfect, sufficient, awesome, glorious God. He's the only one who can satisfy. Only an infinite God has enough love for us. Only an infinite, all-powerful God can provide the full measure of peace, security, comfort, and provision that we, we long for. What we long for cannot be found in this world. St. Augustine understood this when he wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Hundreds of years later, a mathematician named Blaise Pascal wrote, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Yet this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Last week I quoted C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And even the things that we experience here on earth that bring us a taste of joy and satisfaction, even those, we like them because we long for God. They point us to God. We like them because we really like God. Now, why is a deep and lasting friendship such a blessing to us? Because we were created for relationship and supremely for relationship with God to be known by somebody, yet still loved and accepted, to know somebody cares for you and would even sacrifice for you, that's a taste of a relationship with God. Do you enjoy beauty? I mean, does your jaw drop at the staggering beauty of a, of a mountain range? 
or, or a beautiful sunset in the springtime. You delight in these things because you were made to delight in God. He's more beautiful. He's more lovely. He invented Hawaii. Right? That's his idea. He's more beautiful than the sunset. Do you delight in justice? Why does it feel so good to see the good guys win in a movie? To see the villains punished, the heroes vindicated? It's because we delight in God. We were made to delight in him. We were made to appreciate his hunger for justice, his righteousness. Why do we like superhero movies? Why is it so satisfying to see somebody wield tremendous, extraordinary power in the service of good? And we're, we're drawn to that, aren't we? To see somebody or something of tremendous power, it's, it's alluring to us. We love these things because we love God. I mean, since I was a boy, I, I always loved aerospace technology, jets and planes and, and all of that. It was actually my first job out of college was working in aerospace. And I went to air shows, and I just was really into jets. And to this day, as, as a man, if, if a fighter flies over, sometimes every now and then a Hanscom, right, if they do a flyover at Gillette Stadium, some F-18s will come land at Hanscom, and they'll fly over my house. And these jets will come, and they'll fly over, and, and I can hardly help but put my fists up in the air, like, yes! Wow! That, that's so powerful. It's awe-inspiring. The sheer power in that hunk of brilliantly engineered aluminum is just staggering to me. It's so awesome, right? Why do I rejoice in that? Because I was made to rejoice in God. He's more powerful, more powerful, more amazing more awe-inspiring. His works are more astounding than anything we've ever engineered. I long for him. We long for God, his perfect, infinite, inexhaustible love. We long for his presence, the security, the peace, the provision that never runs out, that has no end, the power that lacks nothing to protect and care for us. We long for God's presence the presence we were created for. We were made to be with him and enjoy him forever. And this, friends, this is the problem statement. This is the problem statement for humankind. This is our problem. Because we long for God's presence, but we can't get to him. We can't get to him. And we can respond to that longing in a number of ways. If we recognize our own failing, our own sin, our own moral guilt before a holy and righteous God, we can, we can try to get to him ourselves. We can try to earn our way back to him, to try to be, be good enough to be accepted for him, to strive for God's acceptance and follow all these rules to be perfect and acceptable to God. And the standard that we try to live up to, it's impossible. It crushes us. And we wind up empty and crushed. We're trapped by our own imperfection and despondent, always wondering if we're good enough. Yeah, I gave away all this money, but were my motives really right? Were they really pure? Yeah, I did X, Y, and Z, but is that, is that enough? Do I have to do more? Or we could delude ourselves into thinking that we're good enough already. 
I mean, it's not like I'm a murderer or anything, right? I mean, yes, I've told a lie or two or a thousand. I've, I've, I've lusted after people who weren't my spouse. I've, I've harbored judgment against a friend. I've, I've gossiped and put another down so I could feel better about myself. I've, I've looked the other way at pain and suffering for my own comfort and convenience. I've been insensitive or cruel, but I'm not that bad. So we think we can just waltz into the presence of God, and he's just going to look the other way at our sin and our shame and take us anyway. And we'll see in a few minutes when we, when we get to our text that it doesn't work like this. Or we deny it, or we're ignorant of it even. And so we just wander. We wander through life trying to fill our need, this infinite need, with all the transient fleeting things of this world. Not all of them necessarily bad, but we still wind up empty. Maybe this self-help book will do the trick. Maybe this church, maybe this relationship, maybe this job, maybe this house, maybe this award never works. And we go around longing for God and striving for him, but we don't ever realize it. Friends, this is me 15 years ago. Endless searching down any number of paths, always feeling like this was finally it. I finally got it. This is it. Only to find myself searching again months later, worse off than when I started, because I longed for God. We long for God, but we can't get to him by ourselves. It's a problem. It's a problem for us. But it's not just our problem. It's also a problem for God. If he judges us as we deserve for our sin, he loses us. What, what about his faithfulness and love for his people? He loves his creation. He loves us. We're the apple of his eye. He, he promised Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, that he'd make him into a great nation and prosper them. He promises to bless all the peoples of earth through Abraham. Is he going to renege on that promise? Will he be unfaithful? Will he be unloving? But if he accepts us, he loses himself. Because what about his righteousness? What about his justice? How could we call him good if he didn't deal with evil? God is completely good. He can't tolerate any evil, no matter how small we might think it is. He's perfect. There's no little inconsistency within him such that he could let something slide. He has to judge sin and evil. So how will a sinful people that disobeys and rebels against God, how will a sinful people live with a holy God how will a good and just God, a God of love and acceptance, how will he love and accept a sinful people? Well, our text today points to how this works, how God will judge our sin without judging us. God will judge our sin without judging us. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus in chapter 16. And we're going to read just a few snippets from this. It's a long chapter. I'll try and fill in the blanks to fill out what's happening here. 
In Leviticus 16, start in verse 1. We'll go through verse 10, and then we'll jump to verse 29 through 34 to close out the chapter. Leviticus 16.1. Listen carefully with me to what God's Word says. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now in verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting in the altar, for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. So let me try and walk you through what's happening here. As we discussed last week, the Israelite community, they are recently freed slaves, freed by God and now called to a community that will live in his presence. And at God's command, they've built a tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, which will be the focal point of God's presence and the constant reminder of God's presence in their midst. And within this tent, was an area called the Most Holy Place. And this is where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark is, is basically a golden container that held the stone tablets of the law in them that God wrote. This is the covenant, the agreement God made with his people at Mount Sinai. And in it were also some special items to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness to them. And directly above this Ark, was the place where God's presence and all its holiness and glory rested. It was most intense there. So intense that the most holy place was sectioned off 
from the rest of the tent by a thick curtain. And nobody could go into this place except for one person, and that was the high priest. Aaron was the high priest to the Israelites. He was the the mediator, the go-between, the bridge between God and the Israelites, the one who bridged the gap between the people on earth and the God in heaven. And he's the only one allowed to enter the most holy place. But even he could not enter the presence of God whenever he wanted to. Our chapter started off by alluding to chapter 10 of Leviticus, where two men, Nadab and Abihu, were killed for doing just that. They walked into the most holy place, and they were consumed by fire. And our text describes how Aaron is supposed to enter that place. He has to remove his priestly clothes. And if you've read about his priestly clothes, they're elaborate, beautiful, ordained clothes that make him look like a king. He replaces those with simple linen garments, a linen tunic, shorts, belt, turban, a little more clothes than a slave would wear. And he has to sacrifice a bull for his sin and the sin of his family. And once Aaron has done this, he enters the most holy place. He uses the blood of the bull and the blood of the goats to make atonement for sins. Atonement's a fancy word that we don't use a lot today. It actually was a word invented by a guy named William Tyndale, who was one of the first translators of the Bible into English. And it literally means at-one-ment, atonement, at-one-ment. It's the making of God and man one. So the sprinkling of blood is purifying the tabernacle from all the sins and uncleanliness of Israelites. So what's happening? The blood of the animals, they're covering the people's sins. The animals, the bull and this one goat, are dying and shedding their blood instead of the people. God judges the animals instead of their sin. The animals take the place of the people and die in their stead. But all this blood sprinkling in the tabernacle, it wouldn't be seen. It's not visible to the Israelites, right? It happened behind the curtains. Nobody could see it. So there's this other goat, the scapegoat, which again is a word that Tyndale invented. And this goat provides a visible sign to the community. Because the high priest, Aaron, lays his hands on this goat at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and he confesses all the sins of the people on the head of this goat. So all the sins of the community rest symbolically on this animal. And then the goat is taken outside of the camp. It's cast away from the community, cast out of God's presence, and into the wilderness. And so symbolically, this shows us that sin is removed from the community. It's cast out. Sin is completely and utterly removed out of the sight of God and the sight of the Israelites. The goat bears the guilt and the punishment that's due the people. It's the Israelites who should be cast out of God's presence. But the goat's a substitute for them. It's a proxy for the people. God judges the goat instead of the Israelites. And so what do we see here? I mean, how does God solve this great problem? How can God accept and dwell among a sinful people? God judges their sin without judging them. The animals pay the price, and this temporarily satisfies God's judgment on sin. Sin is dealt with. Evil is punished. God gets his people back, and they get him. Easy, right? Well, no. Notice some very important things here. 
when you consider the, the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system in general, read the first seven chapters of Leviticus and, and read about the burnt offerings and sin offerings and fellowship offerings in there. We see that sin is costly. It's costly. For an agrarian society, destroying an animal is like destroying part of their livelihood. Imagine, once a year, we all came to church and we burned a big pile of money on the stage here. Even if you consider the practical nature of this, it's costly. The time consumed to prepare for the rituals, the, the logistics of slaughtering an animal, cutting up its carcass, burning it, sprinkling its blood, it's a tremendous expense of time and effort. Sin is costly. And second, note at the end of the chapter, it says that the Israelites have to deny themselves on this day. They were to abstain from work, and, and likely denying themselves meant that they were to fast, not eat any food. It was a time of repenting, of considering your sins. They participate in the Day of Atonement. And it evinces a a heart attitude that sought after God, that was sorry for sin. And so the whole nation, including the foreigners among them, had to do this. The ritual by itself wasn't enough. The whole community really participates in this. So this isn't cheap grace. This is prayer and fasting. It's indicative of repentant hearts, people who are sorry for their sin. It's costly, time-consuming endeavor. A sacrifice that costs nothing is no sacrifice at all. David understood this in 2 Samuel 24. And so God judges their sin without judging them. But as you read through the Bible, you notice that even the scriptures acknowledge that this sacrificial system is imperfect. If you read chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, it says this. It says the law can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we see hints of this right in our text. Three times it mentions this is a lasting ordinance. It has to happen every year. Doing it once isn't enough. Year after year, the Day of Atonement takes place. It's not enough. And second, if you think about it, how is it the case that an animal has the same worth and value as a person? How does a bull count as adequate payment for the high priest and his whole family? How can two goats cover an entire nation? While these animals have great worth to the people, is it equivalent? The animal's blood covers the people just as the blood of the lamb did at Passover, but it doesn't take sin away permanently. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, the scripture says. The Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system presented in Leviticus is only a temporary solution to our problem. But more than that, it's foreshadowing. It's pointing forward to the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. As Hebrews says again, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, an ultimate payment for sin, a final sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. The day of atonement points us to Jesus. 
instead of an animal, what about a perfect human being? Instead of a flawless animal being killed instead of us, what if a flawless human being is killed instead of us? The only truly innocent person to ever walk the earth, a perfect, sinless man who perfectly obeys and adheres to the law. There's no sin within him. What if he sheds his blood instead of us? And what if this perfect man is also God? He's not just worth one human, he's infinite. He's human and God at the same time, the God-man, a sacrifice of infinite worth, God's own son, very God of very God, killed as a sacrifice instead of us. It's of infinite worth to cover billions upon billions of people and the billions upon billions of sins, the sins of the whole world. We see in Jesus the one who's perfect, He's perfect in kind and quantity to take away all our sins. He's, he's someone who's perfect in kind to represent us. He's human. He's also perfect in quantity to take on, away our sins. He's infinite. He's God. And the scriptures make this link for us. Isaiah prophesies of this in Isaiah 53, 6. He talks about this suffering servant. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And when you look at the Gospels, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, read those. What happens when Jesus dies? The curtain in the temple. This division between the most holy place of God's dwelling and the rest of the world is torn in two. The very moment that Jesus dies, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note this. Mark 15, 28, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this represents that the most holy place of God's presence that no one can walk into, it's no longer inaccessible to us. It's accessible to us. Jesus' sacrifice has made a way for us to approach God directly. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 10 of Hebrews again says how we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. God judges our sin without judging us. Christ took upon himself all our sin, shame, condemnation, everything. So God could deal with evil and have us. God is calling a community to his presence, and a sinful people can dwell with a holy God because of a sacrifice, because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Jesus pays for all our sins, past, present, and future. So we are right with God. And we can go to him because God judges our sin without judging us. That, friends, that's the kind of God we have. That's how good he is. That's how much he loves you. I'm not going to spare my very self, my own son. I'm going to bankrupt heaven, the most perfect, awesome, costly thing in the universe I'm giving for you. Even though you might hate me and reject me, I want you back that bad. 
I want to solve this problem because you long for me. I long for you. So I will judge your sin and evil without judging you. That's the kind of God we have. He calls a community to his presence, and he makes a way for it to happen. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't come to show us the way. He came to be the way. He is the way. It isn't follow all these rules now, all the commandments that Jesus gave you. No. Jesus pays for that. It's done. There's no more striving. We get him and he gets us. Things are made right again, the way things were supposed to be from the beginning. And this is good news. This is such good news because it's all we ever wanted. This is the final solution to our endless striving to fill up that for which we long. It's the hinge point in history. So as we conclude, I'll have the band come on up. Leviticus has shown us how God calls a people to his presence and how he makes that possible. Jesus is the fulfillment and completion of this great mission, this great story that we study from the early books of Scripture to the final books in Scripture, the ultimate solution to our problem, the final sacrifice for our sins so we can be right with God and dwell in his presence forever because God judges our sin without judging us. He solved the problem on the cross of Christ. And so some of you here today may have never received that or never understood it or realized what that means that Jesus died for you in your sin. He has completely taken away the guilt, shame, condemnation that is your due because of your moral failing before God. He's taken that away. He's wiped it away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may have never heard that before. You may have never received that today. And receiving it doesn't look any different, really, than it did in Leviticus. Your repentance. You acknowledge what your sin cost. You receive that. You receive Christ. I need a Savior. I need a Savior, Lord. Have you prayed that prayer? Today can be that day for you. Today can be the day where your sin is completely removed from your sight and God's sight where you are made one with God again. And I really want to sit on that for a moment. Because if you feel your heart stirring, don't delay. Don't wait. You may never be here again. Your heart may never be this tender again. You may never be in this moment where God is calling you to his presence and you can enter into his presence by blood of Jesus shed for you. Will you receive that today? If you've already accepted Christ as your Savior, you've already realized your need for a Savior, someone to take away your sin and make you right with God, you've received his atoning death as a payment for all your sin and shame, take this time to remember what that freedom costs. We may no longer practice this system of sacrifice for sin that we find in Leviticus, but we should never lose the awareness of it. That someone had to die so we could live. That Jesus lived the life we should have lived, but died to death, we should have died. He bore our judgment so we wouldn't have to. It is not cheap. It is infinitely costly. 
our response is worship. It's a life that's new, that's free. We don't have to strive anymore. We can do good for goodness sake, not for the sake of our own salvation. We're free to that. We're received by our gracious God who judges our sin without judging us. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. You did not spare your own son to sacrifice him at the hands of sinners so you could have us back. You could win us back. You could love us back to yourself. And we could have you, the one we were made for, the one we were created for. Lord God, I pray for any individual or group of people with us today whom you have called here to your presence, they would not walk out of this room today without having received that. Touch their hearts. Holy Spirit, minister to us. Reach our hearts. And Lord God, would you encourage us with the profound statement of love that that is. Would you help us to rejoice in your goodness in this, but also to remember the cost, God, that it was not free. We were bought with price. And may it turn into worship and adoration and love and devotion to you, the God who saved us. We love you, Father. Thank you for this time. Would you bless us now as we respond to your word?